Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, the 20th of September, 2012, and we have a really fun event for tonight. Uh, Bob Glinner, the filmmaker, is here. His movie is Schools That Change Communities, and Dana McCauley, a principal of one of the schools featured in the film, is with him. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks to both of you for being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. We express appreciation to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate. I'm on my Hack Your Education tour. I'm currently in Portland, leaving tomorrow for Seattle, doing these community-based meetings on education. They're at hackyoureducation.com. If you're in one of the cities on the list there, we'd love to see you. The Learning 2.0 virtual conference recordings are all up. That was in, took place in August. A terrific set of uh, sessions, just amazing speakers, all free and all available. The Future of Libraries conference comes up October 3rd through 5th. Uh, we're just about to put the final schedule up. This is a really, really exciting year. Lots and lots of activity. Uh, two days, 24 hours a day of sessions. And then in November, our Global Education Conference five days, 24 hours a day, um, both just rolling ahead full steam, lots and lots of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Nikhil Goyal will talk about his new book, One Size Does Not Fit All. And then, not, not on this schedule, but immediately afterwards is going to be a student panel, a student voices panel, uh, and I'll post that on my blog and more information then. Uh, Ron Richhart talks about making thinking visible. We have the true history of the MOOC on the 26th, Tom Vander Ark on Getting Smart on the 27th. And then October 9th, Kirsten Olson is going to talk about her book, Wounded by School. Can't wait to talk about that in Blake Bowles on Better Than College. Lots of variety in these topics, as you can tell. If you've missed any of the sessions, they are all recorded, both in full Blackboard Collaborate format and in MP3. Charles Fidel talked about 21st century skills yesterday. Jamie Vollmer talked about community activities in order to encourage schools very much in line with tonight's show. Again, futureofeducation.com, all 300 plus interviews up there. So we're going to skip the map today with a small studio audience. The Mighty Bell space for this show, where I've collected some of the resources uh, from Bob's films and also around place-based education, are at this link here. And I encourage you to do that. Gina started the Ning program five, six years ago, and she's now doing Mighty Bell. And I'm consulting for her and glad to be doing so. Always produces great projects for education. So Bob, it's fun to have you back. Thanks for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm interested in kind of drilling down with Dana since we have her uh, here with us. But before we do so, I wanted to ask you a couple sort of overview questions. Um, Bob, why do you think the connection between schools and their communities feels so separate or awkward from most schools? I think we've just uh, had a history of um, when we think about schools, we just think about these separate buildings. Uh, students go into the classroom. I think um, the outside community hopes things will work out, or more recently, there's been a lot of questions about what's going on, but I think we've just had drawn this line between the two, and uh, when I went to uh, try and make this uh, film, I, uh, I found that there weren't a lot of schools doing community-based education. Um, uh, in fact, I, I had to uh, talk to numerous people all over the country just to find the schools that I had on the show. And um, so we've had this kind of, I think, a long historical period of uh, uh, schools just being viewed as separate from, from the communities that they're a part of, and also the curriculum being completely uh, often separate from, separate from community issues uh, that students see when they leave the school. Um, but once they get into school, they seem uh, divorced from the curriculum. And I think with No Child Left Behind and somewhat with Race to the Top legislation, um, uh, where uh, schools are focusing on teaching to tests and, and math and language arts, um, that's been even more exacerbated. So there felt like a real commonality of the schools and organizations that you look at in this film. 
uh, and I would say it was passionate individuals. Is there a connection, do you think, between the kind of um, power or influence of a single individual in these circumstances? I think uh, there definitely is, and I, I don't know if that's a plus or a minus, because then the school becomes dependent on one person to drive the, the program. But in, uh, I think Dana can talk more to this, but Dana was a driving force at Cullen uh, Elementary School when she first came. And, and still is today. And at the other schools I visited, there seemed to be one or two key people that that drove the uh, the, the community-based education. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is that um, uh, teacher ed programs around the United States don't um, prepare teachers to do community-based education, and schools themselves aren't organized around community-based education. So it takes an individual to really uh, a charismatic individual to drive these programs. And when I researched other schools who had been doing this, I found that when certain people left the school, uh, the programs basically collapsed. So it's not, there's not an institutional basis for doing community-based education, which is one of the real, real challenges, I think, both for training teachers and for schools who uh, should be doing this. On the other hand, I think, uh, as I hope the film testifies and Dana can talk about, is that what the schools that do do community-based education get tremendous results. Uh, the students are more vibrant, they're more involved in their educations, they become more active and literate democratic citizens, they know about the problems facing both the communities and the larger society, and uh, they, they know how to become active participants in the, in the society. It's not, uh, it's easy for, how am I going to phrase this? It, um, it feels somewhat interesting to me to think about the parallel between student initiative and educator initiative. And the, the educators that you profiled in the communities, and Dana's going to be modest. She's going to not claim individual responsibility for what took place. But So let's say they're a team of people or, or people who are sort of passionately interested. It feels to me like they're sort of exemplifying the very kind of self-initiative that the students end up developing in the programs. Do you think there's a connection between the kind of bureaucratic school system and, its, and the difficulty in giving educators that kind of freedom to initiate? Uh, yeah, um, I totally agree with that. I think that um, the more schools are controlled by uh, by larger bureaucracies, by state initiatives and state mandates in terms of testing, uh, the more removed teachers are from being able to uh, develop and, um, and control the curriculum. And, uh, the, and then the more divorced students also become from the curriculum itself. I think uh, that the schools that I profile, the students are actively engaged in helping teachers create the curriculum. And uh, to have that kind of an atmosphere, you, well, you have to set up that kind of an atmosphere to make it happen. And unfortunately, a lot of schools are under all these other pressures, and so uh, it's not happening there. Okay. Um, how did you, Bob, how did you learn about place-based education? Well, this uh, show follows, in some ways, a logical path from two earlier programs, which uh, we talked about last year when I was on your show. I did a show in 2007, Democracy Left Behind, which critique No Child Left Behind is narrowing the curriculum, particularly uh, in terms of uh, creating informed and engaged students in terms of democratic society. And then last year, I did the show Lessons from the Real World, which focused on Portland, uh, Oregon's uh, schools that weave social issues through the curriculum. And it seemed like a logical, logical extension that uh, if you're going to think about social issues, why not get the students outside uh, the walls of the classroom to, uh, uh, to actually engage the community because they need community help to be able to solve a lot of the problems that they might be faced with if they're actually doing, dealing with real problems in the community. So that's the more theoretical answer. The, one of the pragmatic answers is that I met a person, uh, uh, Greg Smith, who uh, with uh, a guy named David Sobel, Greg Smith teaches in the uh, Graduate School of Education at Lewis and Clark in Portland. And uh, he and David Sobel uh, co-authored a book called The Place in Community-Based Education in Schools. And so I happened to be teaching a class here at San Jose State, and I used that book. And uh, that, that uh, a lot of the schools they talked about in there, some of them don't do place-based education anymore, but some do. And that led me on this. Uh, 
path to begin exploring where I could go in the United States to, uh, to deal with place-based education. And in fact, uh, David Sobel, uh, he's at Antioch University in New England. Um, he's the one who told me about the uh, Crum uh, School where Dana is. Otherwise, so I Dana, never found him because it's very Go ahead, Bob. Yeah. No, I just finished that. Go ahead. Okay, so Dana, uh, they knew about you, or they knew about Krellen. Uh, would you have used the phrase place-based education and what you're doing? Was that your background of material for the projects that you did? Or, or how did you come to this way of thinking about education? Well, when I first came to Krellen, and it, you know, the story goes back about 11 years, this is my 11th year here, when we started some different initiatives and started really looking at changing the culture of the school and, and sort of begin, began to dive into doing things differently, one of um, our learning partners said to me one day, Vicki Fenwick said, you know, what you're talking about is place-based education. And I kind of looked at her and said, well, I don't care what you call it. <laughs> this is just the right thing to do. It feels right, and this is the way we're going to go. So I, and, so I didn't know what we were doing um, with place-based education. We just knew as a staff that this was good stuff. And the kids were, you know, the kids were engaged, parents were jumping on board, and we began to see a real shift in the culture in the way things were done, not just at the school, but in the community, and in, in, in the community's relationship with the school. Uh, what brought you to, to Crellin? Well, I was an elementary teacher, um, and then I went for seven, eight years, and then I went to central office, and I was in, uh, responsible for all the staff development in the county, and I, I missed being with kids, but I liked being in charge. <laughs> so um, when the position at Crowley became open, I'm actually a teaching principal. We have 118 kids now this year, and when you have less than 200 children in your building, you get to teach two, three hours a day in addition to being the principal. And that, that intrigued me. I love that idea. I love the idea of still being able to be the instructional leader of the school, but also having that responsibility of having to stand in front of the kiddos, you know, stand in front of those kids and, and teach. I, I liked having that, so that's what brought me. When the position came open, I thought, that's what I want to do. So, so in the movie, Krellen, the community is represented as being um, kind of a down-on-its-luck community mm -hmm. prior to a lot of this. Had you grown up in that area, or was, uh, was it just the job that attracted you, or were you actually attracted to the the circumstances of the community? Well, I did not grow up in this area. I actually grew up in um, Pittsburgh and then Severna Park, Maryland, and then I moved to Western Maryland. Um, and I taught the, the school that I taught in, in, in my central office, the central office where I had worked previous to coming here, only about five, six miles away. And my home was only five or six miles away, yet I had never been to Crowland. It wasn't a place you went to. There was no, if you were going to Crellin, you were only, you were kind of going through Crellin to get to the Dairy Queen, which is in West Virginia. So that was the only reason you could come through the town. So I had never really been out here before. And I didn't know a whole lot about it other than, you know, some folks said, really, you want to go to Crellin? You know, why would you want to go there? I said, well, what's wrong with that? You know, yeah, I want to go there. And so, you know, and then coming out, and it just fell in love with it. It's, it's just fell in love with the place, so. So there's a degree to which, or, or maybe it's even said in the film, that it feels like the school kind of holds the community together. Have you learned some lessons about empowering students and their families oh. in terms of oh, thinking my. about their own learning? Absolutely. Well, when we, when we first found the Orange Water, you know, which is the whole AMD product, project that sparked all of this, um, and we knew we wanted to do something, you know, we, the first thing we did, did was bring the community in. And we said, look, there's this property behind the school that is that is serving as a a dumping site. It's truly like a, you know, this is where people brought their trash and just threw it in the fields. And it was right on the river, right behind the school. And um, we kind of looked around and said, well, what do you what do you guys want? Is this what you want your community to look like? What do you want? Oh no, we want. And when we were young, they'd say they you used to be able to ride your bike through town. Now there's no place to ride your bike. When we were young, we used to be able to do this. And, you know, and so the parents and the grandparents began talking about what it was like. And so then the question was, well, what would you like it to be? 
And they said, we want, we want something different for our kids. So what would that look like? What do you want it to look like? And they began, I had the initial chart that they, you know, on their skin. Andy Heimbaugh, one of our moms, stood up and just started writing on the chart what people wanted. And he said, okay, let's see if we can make that happen then. And they, you know, and, it, and so then it became we needed the community's help and the community needed our help. And so we, we talk about tearing the walls down of the school because there used to be a very symbolic row of trees that separated the, the, the back of the playground with the rest of the community. And those trees needed to come down. Those trees came down um, and opened it up. And it was sort of like a way of inviting everybody in, you know, and, and this is this is your school, this is your community, what do you want it to be? You know, and they didn't want the, the kids, you know, out there smoking and drinking in the schoolyard. They didn't, you know, they didn't want all the trouble that was happening sort of down in the middle of town. Um, they wanted to change it and said, well, you guys are the only ones who can change it, you know. So it just, it just, we couldn't have done it without the community. There was no way to move it. And, and the community wanted something different. So I want to come back. Uh, if I could, Go ahead, Bob. What, I just wanted to elaborate on something that Dana said, which is um, uh, if people haven't seen the film, uh, what attracted, one of the things that really attracted me to this school when I talked to Dana on the phone was she, this, uh, she said that there was this orange water in the uh, stream that runs behind the school, which was created by uh, acid mine drainage from the former coal industry in the area. And, uh, and they, you know, the school and the community cleaned up the, the stream, and that became an integral part of their curriculum. And so they didn't separate uh, what was going community problems from the curriculum. And so they, they viewed the stream cleanup and continued to monitor the stream as a way of teaching math, uh, science, and other kinds of lessons. And so it becomes this interdisciplinary curriculum that revolves around concrete problems in the community. And the other thing that attracted me, which they've been working on now, is the, uh, they, there's, a, uh, I guess, a fracking site going on in the watershed nearby the school, or in the watershed that feeds into the school. And uh, so they were, when I was there, and which is on the film, they started monitoring the, uh, the water above and below the fracking site. And so there you have a concrete thing which is affecting the whole United States, which is uh, uh, gas drilling. And, um, and to see what impact it has on the watershed. So you have the students involved not only in a local issue, but in an issue that affects a lot of people all around the United States. What everybody Bob? was doing. Oh, go ahead, Dana. I'm sorry. What everybody was doing as a problem, which was, you know, when we dug down and figured out what was going on, that orange water was acid mine drainage, and that um, what was viewed as the problem truly became the opportunity. You know, it was taking that problem and saying, oh, good, look. There's something we can all join forces and work towards. That became the opportunity. And it wasn't about blaming anyone, because a lot of the granddads and the uncles and, and the dads used to work or still work in those mines. So nobody did anything on purpose. In fact, when the mine was here and, and the train was here and the typical, that was all to support the war. So you know, our little town had a piece of that history. So it wasn't about placing blame. It was, okay, well, no one really realized what you were doing. You did what you had to do. Now let's work together to make it better. Let's, let's, change, let's change. And in changing that, you're changing the, the culture because it wasn't us against them. Sort of what Bob alluded to earlier. It was they needed us, we needed them. Here we go. You know, let's make this better. Let's make this community one that people want to move into, not where people you know, move out of, but one that attracts people, even though, you know, if you blink your eyes, you're through the town, it's still a great little town to live in, you know, so. So let me paint a quick picture here. Okay. So the school gets involved in a community project. The community comes together and really gets excited about it. The, the school becomes kind of the center or the holding, it holds the community together in, in really sort of lovely ways. Um, the test scores go up. In fact, I think they were your highest test scores in the state, right? And yet, Bob says uh, it was really there weren't that many schools doing this kind of education. Right. So, what's the disconnect, Dana? I think that in something that you you um, and Bob were speaking to earlier, when you talked about the role of the principal, and I really felt like my role was. My teachers are professionals. They know their stuff and they love it. 
and they love kids, was to give them permission to do what they knew was best. So here's, do, I'm not going to tell you what you have to use when you teach your kids to read. You know what those kids need. I'm not going to tell you, um, I'll introduce you to some new strategies. If you feel you need more, I can provide that for you. But, but empowering those teachers the same way I wanted them to empower the kids, you know, the same way we wanted to empower the community. It, everybody has to be able to do that, not just a select few. And so in my role as the principal, and the one that they turn to, and I look at them and say, you know what to do. Make it happen. And if you need my help, let me know. But you, you've got great ideas. You know your kids. You know how to get them there. I trust you. And that's exactly what that's exactly what you want to tell the kids, and that's exactly what you want to tell you know the parents and in the community. So it was it was allowing them to give up um, to give up a little bit of that control issue that sometimes people have, you know, and saying to the kids, "What do you want to learn about?" Because we know the standards, we know what we have to teach them. Why not do it in a way that's going to interest the kids? Why not going to do it in a way that's going to be completely and totally relevant to them when they walk? when they are walking home from school. And they look and they say, oh, yeah, we cleaned that up today. Or, you know, oh, we were, we were doing chemistry testing in the water today. The pH level is, you know, 6.5, you know, or whatever it is. So it's, it's allowing them to, um, to sort of explore those different options and making it really, really relevant for the kids so there's a reason to learn it. And it affects them immediately and it affects their community. And then they turn around and look and they say, we did that. Look what we built. Look what we improved. That's empowering. I think, uh, can I jump in here? Um, I think one of the, the disconnects that you ask about is that, well, a couple things. One is that uh, our colleges and universities, let alone our public schools, don't really teach uh, students about community organizing or future teachers about community organizing. And second thing is that when you do this kind of curriculum, you have to, as Dana points out, you have to be very flexible because uh, community problems don't necessarily stack up in terms of a 50-minute class period or, a, uh, you know, the school day or the school calendar. And so you have to be willing to flow with a lot of things. When I visited uh, Dana's school and the other schools, you know, you have to make time to do these kinds of things. They don't happen on a real set calendar. Um, and so you have to be willing to do that. And the other thing is, is uh, as Dana points out, the teachers have to want to to put the energy out to be able to help create their own curriculum. And nationally, it's kind of going in the opposite direction. Even though a lot of teachers would like to create their own curriculum, the state or various states uh, or boards of education are mandating they teach a standardized curriculum or teach to the script or something like that. And so those are at odds with this kind of community-based education, even though it seems to make logical sense that uh, again, if students are involved with the community, they're involved with issues that affect their lives, they're going to be far more motivated to learn the basics as well as a lot of other important things than they would be if they just drilled every day, hour by hour, in math, uh, language arts, or science, and so forth. And then they just become uh, uh, disaffected from the schools and they, they either drop out or they just memorize the stuff and they forget it as soon as they leave the classroom and, and so forth. So I think one of the reasons I did the film was to show that Hey, this is a way we can really uh, maybe uh, uh, take another look at what we really mean by educational reform in, in the United States. Maybe we should be reforming the curriculum in this context rather than uh, just tweaking what's going on in the classroom. Well, and I think that Bob, um, go ahead, Dana. piggybacking on what Bob's saying is that we know the standards. Absolutely, we know the state standards, we know the national standards, we know them. We have looked at them backwards and forwards. We sit and we look at how does it progress from one grade to the next? What level of understanding do the kids need to have? What skills and processes do they need to have? How you go about teaching that, those standards, because we're all going for it. We all want, you know, college and career-ready kids. How you go about teaching that is what can be different. The, 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 the activities that you use, the projects that you use, those can be different and relevant. The, the standards don't, or the standards, and we're all working toward them, but it's, it's the method that you're getting to get there. A lot of people say, when do you ever find time to go out and measure the trees? Well, I teach measurement in math. I do that instead of looking, doing the problems in the book. In, instead of teaching the kids just the 
had to, had to um, calculate area and perimeter, they're planning that garden, and they need to figure out how much space they need, how much fencing they need, how much mulch is needed. There's your volume. You know, so it's, it's looking at, and those are standards the kids need to have. It's just going about it in a completely different way and making that relevant to what we're doing here and to what's happening in the community. I don't want to draw an inappropriate connection, mm -hmm. but Dana, I'm wondering if the fact that you came into a school in a town that was struggling and that some of Bob's other examples are places where it feels like the system has failed, if there isn't a connection between the ability to do this and be creative that you might not have in a more affluent or more sort of successful, in quotes, situation. Well, I think um, kids are kids. Um, you know, kids, it doesn't matter where they come from, kids are kids. Are kids. Their experiences that bring to the table are quite different, um, but nonetheless all valuable. So I think it depends on the community. I think no, every parent that I know of never says to a child, well, you know, go to school and cause some trouble, or, you know, they, they want their kids to do the best and to be the best they can be no matter where they are. So I, but I think it's a, it's a trust issue. I think sometimes it, it becomes that, a trust issue as to, well, what are you going to do here? We're already doing this, that, and the other, so we don't need any of that. Um, because people get nervous. People get scared. Teachers get scared. Teachers get scared when they think about um, oh, the, those test scores and what's going to happen. You know, so don't worry about it. I'm the first to go. The <laughs> principal's the first one if something happens. Don't worry about it. You know, so it's, um, I, don't, I don't know if it would be different to do it in, in an affluent area. Um, you know, I, I think you can look around and you can, you can find things in a community that can always be improved upon, you know, or, or changed or um, studied, if nothing else, for the, for the history value of it. So, um, I don't know. I don't, Rob, what do, what do you think when you saw it in the different schools? Well, I, I actually, I, I, even though this, uh, I, I did pick schools that were in challenging circumstances, for example, the school in Boston that's in a high crime area, high poverty area, and, and in Watsonville, California, uh, faced by numerous uh, immigration issues and, um, and um, other kinds of problems um, in the community. Nevertheless, uh, I taught for years at San Jose State in the heart of Silicon Valley, and I'm talking to you today from Silicon Valley, and when I tried to research this issue, and my previous one, by the way, about weaving social issues into the classroom. Um, and I know a lot of educators here in the Valley. Nobody could t point me to a school in Silicon Valley, which is the high-tech capital of the world, that was an innovative, supposedly techno technologically innovative capital of the world, that's uh, doing this kind of community-based education. So here we are, and 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 Silicon Valley is um, not all the neighborhoods are affluent, but there are plenty of affluent neighborhoods, and and those schools are, make, are doing fancy stuff with technology, but they're not doing uh, this kind of community-based education where the students are going out, taking on the walls between the classroom and the community, and actually using the community as a as a as a resource um, uh, uh, around which to build a curriculum. So. I don't think it's, uh, you know, they pride themselves on high test scores in a lot of the areas of Silicon Valley, but I don't know if they pride themselves on that they're turning out uh, uh, critical, uh, future critical citizens of a democratic society. The connection I was trying to make was with the latitude to do something different that might be provided in a situation where, um, where, say, in Silicon Valley, there would be such kind of political and parental pressure to do things the way they're currently done. So again, I'm, I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but is it possible there's a connection between the difficulty of circumstance and the willingness to allow a principal like Dana to do something different? Yeah, I, actually, I would agree with you on that, because I think in, in a lot of ways, they probably feel we've got nothing to lose. Uh, students are cutting class. Uh, they have lousy test scores. So let's let's give those schools a chance to try something different. So I, I would agree with you. I would agree with you around that. Dana, are there other schools local to you who have um, come and sought to follow your example, or do you find that um, that you're not getting you're not um, 
influencing the other local schools? I think there are there are definitely some schools um, in the area. I know there's some in neighboring West Virginia that um, the the superintendent of that school actually of the school district actually came over and um, is really looking at implementing what we're doing here throughout his whole you know all of his schools. Um, but in our immediate area, we definitely have some schools who are looking at doing more environmental activities and doing getting the kids more engaged in the environment piece of it. Um, in terms of get, looking, they're looking at that in terms of a, a problem-based environmental issue and looking at, okay, environmentally what's going on and then using that, that issue as a springboard for the kids to do a lot of investigations and then, you know, the what if, what if we did it this way, what would happen, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of, and I think, well, I have, do have to say that in, in all of the schools, um, there's a push right now to open the doors more and to get a lot more parent involvement, and to bring, you know, more parents involved in what's happening in the schools. I think that what happened here at Crellin was, um, was unique because it hadn't been that way in this community for well, forever. Um, and so that's what was different. And a lot of our parents did not have a really positive school experience. And so, you know, they sort of had, I can remember having one conversation my first year here where parents said, well, this and this and this was done to me, and you're not going to do that to my kids. And I remember sitting there listening and saying, oh, my golly, I would never do that to a child. You know, that would be terrible. That 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 experience that they brought to the table and then seeing us sort of saying, well, no, that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're about. And changing their opinion of what school is was, was rather a unique experience. So I do, I do think that there is an effort to try to get um, more parental and community involvement in the schools. I think that maybe sometimes people aren't sure how to make that happen and how to do it effectively. Um. One thing that uh, I think is important that emerges in all the schools I focused on, but particularly in Dana School and in uh, Young Achievers in Boston, is that um, uh, teachers support each other. And, uh, uh, and I think a lot of teachers around the country often feel isolated, particularly in, not so much in terms of maybe salary issues and so forth, but they feel isolated in terms of curriculum development. And um, I witnessed the Dana School teachers frequently team teaching. Um, it's one teacher didn't know something, they felt they didn't feel tight about asking another teacher, how, how am I going to make this work in the community? Or they brought other kinds of community experiences together. And I, so I think what's important about community-based education to be successful, one of the things seems to me is that uh, it has to be like an interdisciplinary approach. It can't be. Even though one classroom could probably go out and do something in the community, they'd be far more effective if you have multiple classes going out, approaching it from different academic perspectives, and then working together because it gives you a lot more time uh, during the school day to do that. And it gives the students a sense that you know problems aren't just a math problem, it's not just an English problem, it's not a science problem, but it's an interdisciplinary problem. And, and to approach it that way, and I think then when parents begin to see that, they they don't just see this, well, I don't know that much about math, so I can't help out, but parents might know something about something else. And so that permits more parents to get involved also. Bob, I think you bring up a really good point. And not only um, sharing the expertise of the teachers, because we all have our own strengths, but the expertise, you're right, of those community members who are coming in. And we call them our learning partners. Um, and so when we're, when we're inviting our learning partners to come in, or they're coming in and saying, hey, I have this to offer, you know, um, we look at, oh, good, because we don't know how to do that. A lot of the folks that we com have coming in to work with our kids are chemists, scientists, um, you know, uh, they have all kinds of different expertise and talents that we don't have. And so it's also the teachers letting go and saying, okay, you teach the teacher becoming part of, you know, one of the students in the class and learning from that community member. Um, now, the teacher has the expertise in, in knowing how do I bring that down to an eight-year-old level? How do I extract that important vocabulary for the kids? How can I turn this into a good, you know, um, project for them? So it's, it's um, that kind of that team teaching, but not just among the teachers, but among the teachers and the community members who, who we invite in or who come in. 
Dana, are there policy implications for the experiences that you've had? If you could wave a magic wand and ask the state or the federal government to do something that would be supportive of this kind of education, what would it be? Oh, wow, magic wand. I would love to have a magic wand. <laughs> Where would I start? Um, where would it be? I think it would be giving the schools in the in the in the uh, the principals and the teachers of the schools more freedom, more latitude in how how they're going to make some things happen. I, I think that you know I I don't need to tell my teachers how to tell a, a child how to teach a child to read. They know how to do that. And I don't even need to actually give them the books they need. I need to provide them with what they tell me they need. But my, the, the teachers are professional enough to know that child needs more work in this area, this one needs work in this area, this needs, one needs work in this area. And then me being able to give them the resources and the time they need to say, okay, how, what would that look like? What's the best case scenario this year for these kids on this day? Because it changes constantly. And so you need, you need to have, also with that magic wand, I would allow it to be a little more fluid so that inflexible, so that as the needs of the kids change, the teachers have permission and the expectation that they need to also be changing and not and you know get rid of any of that that rigid guidelines that you have so that the teachers can totally it's about the kids it's supposed to be all about the kids and giving the kids what they need, not about what makes us feel good, it's about what makes the kids you know learning and, and what makes them feel good. So I think that if we could kind of turn the focus that way, and in order to do that, we're going to need to be a little more flexible um, and allow the teachers to use their professional judgment more often. Well, flexibility and freedom don't really, <laughs> they're not really the current buzzwords in the I know, I debates. know. But you said that you were giving me a magic wand, so. <laughs> right. So, at, so Bob, you've been looking at this for a while on a variety of levels. You know, why is there such fear and pushback in this regard? Well, I think uh, one, one of the things is that I, when it comes to, we seem to be a very uh, um, quantitatively oriented society and a test-based society. And I think increasingly, uh, for whatever reason, the public is on, on to an uh, accountability and they see accountability locked up with test scores and so when you think about constantly quantifying things they they feel the shortest distance between the two points is to just open up a textbook and try and teach somebody math or science or social studies and so forth rather than in the community where as I said earlier things can don't always break down into neat categories and it might take a while um, but the students often learn a lot of other things and I think um, so there's a lot of pushback because everybody wants to see results. We're, we've become increasingly results-oriented, and uh, I, I think technology has driven that as well. Everybody wants instant answers to everything. So there's that. And I also think a lot of times when they think about schools engaged with the community, they, they think there's a political agenda, and uh, and they get or a, a values-based education, and um, and so the people get worried about that for some reason, even though. What they're really doing is they're teaching students, uh, as Dana pointed out earlier, it's students working with community members, working with parents, working with uh, people from non-government organizations or nonprofits uh, or government and so forth to help solve a real problem, which is real life. And uh, um, but oftentimes there's a lot of fear about oh we're going to offend some taxpayer, particularly when people are cutting taxes and uh, cutting spending for schools. People are worried about turning off people who might fund. Uh, on their school, and uh, teachers might end up losing their jobs. So um, I think there's a lot of, of that kind of thing, and I think um, uh, that kind of permeates the society, even though there's there's hundreds of thousands of uh, students uh, and parents and, communi and community members who would want to do this kind of thing. It's just somehow enabling them to do it, and I think I, I hope one of the goals of the film, uh, well, one of the goals of the film is to show that it's possible and um, uh, that you can do this. And I tried to pick five uh, fundamentally different types of communities so that it would resonate, and also diverse communities, so that it would resonate with a wide audience. And, uh, and that they could say, well, 
I don't live in uh, rural Appalachia, but I live in um, inner city Boston, or I live in inner city Los Angeles, or I live in inner city New York, and I can make this happen there. It's not just in a, in a, uh, in a rural area. Or I live in an area with a, a lot of uh, people who would, uh, English isn't their first language, say in Watsonville, California. So um, I wanted to show that it's possible to do it in that kind of school as well. So I think there's just not a lot of models out there. and. Um, um, so that's one, that's the beginning is to, to, to begin, as one parent points out, um, in another school I profiled on the show, uh, which is uh, Young Achievers uh, Science and Math Pilot School in, in Boston, in the math health section of Boston, the parent at the end of the section says, uh, one of the fundamental things that the school has done is to teach uh, or is to show the community that it's possible to dream again. It's possible for the kids to dream and it's possible for the parents to dream that things can be better and we can make a, an entirely different community. And I hope that the film uh, enables people to, uh, to see the possibilities. Uh, but on a pragmatic level, we're a long way from, from that point. I definitely heard themes in the film of, you know, the concern about um, value-based education maybe. I'm not even sure I heard that in the film, but I thought of it. But definitely I heard in the film the concern about rigor, right? That this seems less rigorous. Is that, does that come up, Bob or Dana? In fact, let's go to Dana. Dana, does that come up for you? That, that what seems less rigorous? What, that this what form of education, kind of the working on projects, uh, almost, almost kind of touchy-feely sort of social justice kind of stuff. Do people feel like that's potentially not rigorous enough? Well, you know, Sandy Askins, I, I love this kind of quote that she, she gave us one day, and she said, success on any high-stakes test, or even in life, is not about how you handle the familiar, it's about how you handle the unfamiliar. So our goal is to make learning memorable. It's not about memorizing. If all we're going to ask kids to do is memorize a list of really hard words and their meaning that has nothing to do with uh, what, what might happen in a week or in two weeks, then you really haven't taught them anything. So it's not about it's not about just taking um, some really hard math problems and switching them up in different ways so they can do well. They, so when they see that same exact math problem, they can do it on the test. You haven't really taught them anything because it's what it's the problem solving that's involved in solving that math problem that will help them problem solve a much different problem later on. That's the learning. So. So the rigor, the rigor, is, I think, is actually stepped up. Our expectations are extremely high. We go, when we look at the standards, we're, I think one of the reasons that we do so well in the state test is we teach about it. You know, when, when you look at those standards, that's not the ceiling, that's the floor. That's not, you know, you want to go above that. You want your kids to be able to do that and then more and then some. You know, not, that's not the... That's how we look at it, at least. That's how, that's how we're looking at it. We think we, we're stepping it up, not making it easier. And it's not touchy-feely. It's hard work, and it's, it's the kids work extremely hard. Um, are they having fun? Sure they are. We're making memories. They're not going to forget. They're not going to forget going down to the stream or, uh, um, you know, and, and doing the chemical testing. They're going to remember that later on when they're wondering why the, their well water is, is you know, turn it orange or something. You know, they're going to remember what that was about. So that's, um, yeah, so what we, we think we're stepping it up. We think that the rigor has been, we've increased it, not decreased it. Yeah, I, about, I would... It's, I, it's about handling the unknown later on, not just doing well on the test. How can they take those skills and processes that you've taught them through a real memorable experience and apply it to a completely different situation? That's what you want them to be able to do. Yeah, I would agree with Dana. The quote you actually used was from another school I profiled. It was from the superintendent of Cottage Grove uh, School yeah. District in Cottage Grove, Oregon. And um, she said when they, they started uh, at this Kennedy Alternative High School um, um, where the students spend uh, whole days outside of the school walls uh, in various proje environmental projects, sustainability projects, but then they come back in the classroom and they actually are able to do the lab experiments with the research they've uncovered in the community and they end up doing much better. And so she was, uh, I think she was expressing that initially she was 
surprised that this would work, but then she saw that it did work. And in fact, for them, the dropout rate went down and the uh, test scores went up. And, and they were dealing with uh, students uh, who uh, hadn't had that much success with schools, traditional schools. Bob, what's your experience been with regard to teachers in these programs? I want to believe that they just sort of immediately adopt and love this style. Is there ever pushback from the teachers themselves? Well, I think the pushback from teachers probably comes, in fact, it's probably fairly easy for teachers to push back because they're not going to be at one of these schools. There are not that many of these schools. And um, since the dominant mode of teaching is not community-based education a place-based education, um, they just have to push back by going along with the status quo. I think the challenge is, is the teachers that want to uh, get out and do place-based and community-based education, to focus on issues in the community. That's, that's the challenging part. I think I haven't really experienced or I wasn't immersed long enough in the schools to experience that kind of uh, pushback. My teachers said, I, I don't, I don't want to do this kind of thing because it's going to cost me my job or the, the test scores are going to go down. I think uh, the schools that I went to, um, both on this program and my previous programs, the teachers that were involved were involved because they really wanted to do it. And, and uh, given the national, uh, what I think 50% uh, of the teachers leave the profession every five years. Right now, and the, the turnout rate among teachers, I think um, most or a lot of teachers would welcome the opportunity to do this kind of curriculum. Um, and so, uh, and they, but unfortunately, they're just not at the school where they're able to do it, or they don't see a way of connecting with other teachers or community members to be able to make it a reality. And I hope that they would. You know, we we actually have two teachers on staff who have over 30 years of teaching experience in. So they've, they've seen it swing from one end to the other. And when folks ask them about retiring, you know, Mrs. Sanders looks and says, I'm having too much fun. I, I love coming to school. I learn something new every time, every day I come here. This is, this is what it's really about. I wish I would have been doing this years ago, you know. So um, I think that we didn't see any, any type of pushback from anyone. Um, I think there was a little bit like, really, we can do that? Okay, how would we do that? You know, and, well, I don't know. We haven't done this before either, but we'll figure it out, you know, and, and then let's just keep moving. So um, I, I don't think that, I think if there's any kind of pushback, I think it's out of fear. I think, Bob, you alluded to that when you said fear of what about my pay or what about the test scores or what about, and when you can take that off the table and tell, tell the teachers, which, you know, we did hear it, don't worry about that. That's, I'll worry about that. You just keep moving. I'll worry about the other stuff. Then they were able. Okay, that's what she says to do. You know, and then I see you as being a pretty charismatic leader, Dana. I mean, I can see people really wanting to follow your leadership role on this, your enthusiasm and the like. Do you find that any teachers from the surrounding areas want to come work at Crowen? Oh, absolutely. Yes. 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 And oh, yeah, absolutely. We we. I hear that quite often. I wish I could come out to Crellin, come out to Crellin. But it's interesting because I actually heard um, a, a teacher said to me once um, that she was talking to, to someone else, and they said, oh, I don't know. They work too hard out there because it is hard. It isn't easy. Um, we, work, we, you know, we work as long of hours as anyone else. Um, it doesn't just end when the kids leave because you're constantly you know, thinking about it, but it's not a downer thinking about it. It's not, oh no, I have to plan that. It's you're excited about planning it. You want to do it. Um, but we, we definitely have um, a lot of teachers who have expressed interest and said, oh, I wish you had some openings. I wish you had some openings. You know, we'd love to come out and, and be a part of that. So that's nice. I really you know, still see that. I see that parallel between the engagement of the students and the engagement of the teachers. Go ahead, Bob. Oh. Well, I was just going to say uh, one example of, of the kind of atmosphere at Curlin where Dana is. Um, virtually everybody, every teacher I interviewed at the end of the interview, and, uh, and a lot of the parents I interviewed, teared up at the end of the interview or during the interview. In fact, we got to joking about we needed a big Kleenex box because they love the school so much, you know. And uh, it would be great to be going to a lot of schools and see that happen. I mean, not that tearing up is always that great, but it was just, uh, <laughs> we were so emotionally caught up with being at the school, you know, mm -hmm. and with helping each other out. 
in helping the community out. Well, in knowing that you're making a difference. Knowing that what you're doing is why you got into this profession to begin with, because you love kids and you want and you want to see the good things happen. And so when you find yourself a part of that, it's um it's it's you know, it just kind of brings that feeling of you of yes, this is you know, of triumph that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And it feels good. And then of course it makes you want to do more of it. So it's contagious, you know, it's contagious and you you, you keep wanting that. It's a good thing. Do either of you have your own children or grandchildren, and uh, have they gone to this kind of a school? I do. Um, I, I have two kids, and um, when I first started teaching or being principal here at Crowland, um, my kids were actually enrolled in another school, uh, and I about a month into it, I brought my kids out here, mainly because of scheduling, and it was just going to be a lot easier, and so I transferred them out here to Crowland. And I actually had a colleague say, are you sure you want your kids to go there? You know, and I kind of, not a colleague here from Crowland, but somewhere else, and I said, you know, if the school isn't good enough for my own kids, no one should be going there then. Right? I mean, it should, it should be. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my children got to experience, have the Crowland experience, we call it. Um, from, my daughter was in first grade. My son was in second grade when, when I came out here. And it's interesting now, they're, it's a high school, they're in high school now, and they will say to me today, oh, Mom, Mr. Oxford at the high school, he could, he could work at Crowland. He could be a Crowland teacher. He, and I, really, what makes him a Crowland teacher? He really cares. He really, you know, and they'll begin telling me um, who they think could be a Crowland teacher based on their experience here with the staff in the community. Well, I, I uh, yeah, let's see, I have uh, four kids, they're uh, grown, and uh, none of them went to this kind of school, and I have two grandkids, and they're not currently going to this kind of school either. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think, again, as I said earlier, I don't think these schools are typical. I, I would hope that they would be. I hope that the word spreads about them, but... Um, when I re did the research to try and uh, find these schools across the country, um, you know there were there was a, there's a classroom here and there uh, at every uh, not every school but at some schools that are doing some kind of uh, community project. But to get the whole school involved or uh, a, a set of cl interdisciplinary classes involved in a project um, is not is not the rule by any means. So no, I, I I wish they had gone through that kind of experience. I wish I had gone through that kind of experience um, when I was going to uh, to public school and growing up. Bob, who will see the film? Uh, the film is uh, well, it's available currently on DVD off my website for a reasonable price. But it's uh, the main audience um, is uh, is the PBS audience, and most of my films are aired on PBS stations, and this film. Um, will start airing on PBS stations uh, um, in January. So we hope to have uh, a lot of stations carry the program, and um, we hope uh, uh, you know that the, the word spreads about the film. So that, that that's the the general audience is uh, um, is various, uh, PBS stations that will end up showing the uh, program. So I just put the link to the webpage for ordering the film and the film information uh, in the chat, so it's recorded there. Um, I, sort of as maybe a final topic here for me would be the kind of moving sense of community that comes through the film. Uh, it, it, I'm trying to remember which example it is, Bob, where there are three generations together and they're uh, really working together. Do you, do you remember which school that is? I think that's in Howard, South Dakota. Um, where uh, Howard is the one uh, part of the film where I took an historical example and then I brought it up to the present in Howard, uh, which is a small rural town a little over an hour from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, the, uh, the town was going under like a lot of rural towns uh, in the 90s. And um, uh, one of the teachers, Randy Perry, uh, who was teaching business education, a business education class, said, "You know, we got to uh, we got to get the students involved in trying to save the town. What can we do?" And so uh, uh, they uh, developed this whole plan to uh, 
to get people to spend more money locally to bring in uh, um, alternative energy kinds of companies to the town um, and, and cutting edge uh, technology uh, small businesses to the town and um, and they all work on it together um, all, all the generations so the high school students um, actually, like in the English class, they wrote a letter, letters to members of Congress, and Tom Daschle, uh, who was the senator from South Dakota at the time, came to the school, and they got a little bit of federal money. Um, so that was in an English class. And then, you know, uh, um, I think the science classes did research on what was going on in terms of health issues in the community. And, and so the whole town got together across multiple generations to uh, to save the town, and they did. And um, um, However, what happened was it was very successful, and they formed a uh, successful nonprofit that they could hopefully use as a way of modeling what they did for other rural towns across the Midwest that were faced with similar problems. And a lot, um, that drew a lot of the good teachers away from the school. So when I was there, I went to the high school to see what was happening now, and it turned out that some of the current students felt left out of the dream that, that had happened in Howard, and, and they wanted to see a new set of things happen, and, um, and that's what I tried to capture uh, toward the end of that section of the film. But um, with the, what those students, uh, one of the things those students said to me that I thought was remarkable was when they spoke at these community meetings, as high school students, the grandparents, and the parents all listened to what they had to say. They wanted their feedback. They didn't just say, oh, you're just students. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what's going on out here. Um, they really wanted them involved, all the generations working together, and, and uh, so that's that's the example from the film of, uh, of that multi-generational uh, approach. Dana, is this a story about schools, or a story about communities, or both? Meaning, um, it, did, have we lost something in our sense of American culture around communities, where this is uniquely valuable to refocus? Um, or have schools always played this role? No, I don't think they've always played. At least they haven't played this role in many places. I'm not, I'm not sure. I Bob just said he had a hard time finding schools that actually do this. Um, I do think we need to refocus. You know, it, you, they talk about reaching every child, no child left behind. You, you kind of have to step into their world. And we don't tend to want to do that. We we tend to want to just have the child change. The child, we need to change the child, we need to change the child. Sometimes we're the ones who need to be the ones who change. And we need, as the adults, we need to change what we're doing to accommodate what they need. And going into their place um, and then and pulling them all, you know, into, a, in, into the kind of the school environment, um, school is not always a, a happy place for people, and so there's you know there's a reason why you know some folks don't look at it as something that's important. Maybe they didn't have a good experience or whatever. So I think it's you know I do think that we need to if if you want to reach the child you need to you need to go where they are. Um, you just can't expect them to to follow blindly. So I think it's 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 I think it's a story. I'm not sure you can have a really good story about a, a school without looking at the community. I think you're missing a huge piece if you do that. Then, you, then you're getting a very narrow view of it. You're getting the, only the academic view of it. And that's important, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more to it than that. Just adding on to briefly what Dana said, I think um, a lot of people really want community in this country, and they're not sure how to go about it. A lot of people uh, create these technology communities, but I think that, that in itself misses something. It misses the face-to-face, -face, the sense of community that, uh, that you get from that physical presence. And I think schools could really uh, be a, um, a vehicle for forming community or for building community. Uh, that um, both the, the children and the parents and the grandparents and other community members really want both, and not just in rural areas, but in urban areas. You know, a lot of our society is very uh, fragmented and very isolated, and um, and uh, schools could serve this purpose uh, in, in a really good fashion. I think that's a great way to close. Uh, I'm going to clap for you here. Be before we sort of sign off, Peggy wanted to know if if there were going to be any supplementary materials to the documentary um, for people trying to do this in their local areas. Is that something you've thought about, Bob? Uh, well, the film, uh, I put a website um, on the end of the film. There's a, a website called Promise of Place. Um, 
which uh, is a place-based education website. I think there's a few others. Um, we haven't talked about getting into that, but we do link people to that website, um, or they can explore that website, which uh, uh, features place-based education. And I put that link in the mighty bell. Uh, Bob and Dana, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Really delightful to get to know you, Dana, and have you back on, Bob. Coming up on Monday, Nikhil Goyal talks about his book, One Size Does Not Fit All, and then Ron Richhart on Making Thinking Visible. We have a really full week next week, four webinars. Thanks to Bob, thanks to Dana, thanks to those of you who have attended or are listening. Take care, everybody. Bye now.